Over 35,000 delegates from around the world met in Egypt recently for the 27th Conference of the Parties, or COP27 as it's more commonly called. And one of the major outcomes, particularly for small island developing states like the ones found in the Caribbean, was the agreement to establish a loss and damage fund, which, if properly implemented, could provide much-needed financial aid to developing nations suffering the harshest impacts of climate change. But what did it take to reach the agreement? This question was raised when we set out to learn more about the fund, and it led to a very interesting discussion about the tough negotiating environment faced by small island states and other developing nations at the COP. We spoke with two individuals who were at COP27. They were there on behalf of Climate Analytics, an organization focused on using scientific data to inform climate policy and support vulnerable countries in UN climate negotiations. Ruana Haynes, the director of Climate Analytics Caribbean, is a climate law and governance expert and a long-time negotiator at the conference. She helped us understand the significance of our recent win and guided us through the politics and other surrounding factors. I regularly refer to the UNFCCC, which is, you know, our short name for the entire process, as the Wild Wild West. Shailif Leewing is a CAC project officer and a first-time COP attendant. He provided us with additional insight and gave us a first-hand account of the atmosphere on the ground. The assumption is that, you know, the, the scientists, the specialists, the environmentalists would be the ones using the science, um, using the reason to say, all right, well, these are the things that we need to do. So let's talk about the loss and damage fund and the 30-year fight to bring it to life in this episode of Caesar Voices. UN Climate Change Conferences, otherwise known as Conferences of the Parties, or COPs, are held each year to assess worldwide progress in dealing with climate change and to establish legally binding obligations for the countries involved in the effort. Each year, delegates from SIDS and other vulnerable nations attend the conference to fight for important issues to be addressed, with support from organizations such as Climate Analytics. Um, so Climate Analytics started off in 2008 as a climate policy institute based in Berlin. Their work is focused on climate science and they spent a lot of time supporting small island developing states and least developed countries in climate change negotiations, helping them to establish the scientific basis for a lot of the positions that they took. Since then, the organization has expanded quite a lot. There are now offices in several different countries around the world, uh, there's a North America office in New York. There's a um, West Africa office in Togo. There's a Asia Pacific office in Perth, a South Asian office in Nepal. Um, and now as well, a Caribbean office based in Trinidad and Tobago. Each office takes a slightly different approach depending on the needs of the region that it serves. In our context, our work is focused on climate justice, advocacy, as well as education and knowledge, um, all with that same initial sort of science-based approach. Climate analytics has been a key presence at the COP for several years, playing a number of important supporting roles. 
it really depends on, I guess, where you sit in the organization. So by way of background, uh, the way climate analytics is set up now that we have expanded, we have all of these offices, is through a matrix type of approach where we have offices, we have office directors like myself, but we also have teams. Uh, we have a climate diplomacy team that works with providing sort of the technical backstopping, uh, strategic advice and political support to SIDS and LDC countries in climate change negotiations. And I sit on the diplomacy team as well as she, everyone in my office is de facto on the diplomacy team. Uh, we also have an implementation strategies team that works with countries um, more along the lines of accessing climate finance, designing nationally determined contributions and other projects in order to attract climate finance. We also have a science team and a policy team. So depending on where you sit in the organization, uh, what you do at ACOP will vary. Uh, as for myself, Shalif, um, other members of our team at Climate Analytics Caribbean, because we are part of the diplomacy team, our work involves you know, providing that um, the technical support to countries, SIDS countries specifically within the negotiations. It was with the help of the Climate Analytics Diplomacy team that SIDS were able to secure the agreement to establish a loss and damage fund. What is the loss and damage fund? Can we get into that? Yeah, so the loss and damage fund, which, well, of course, is still to be operationalized, um, is essentially a new funding arrangement for assisting developing countries that are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change and assisting them, of course, in responding to loss and damage. So it focuses on addressing loss and damage by providing and assisting and mobilizing new and additional resources and sources of funding. So for those who aren't familiar with loss and damage as a concept, um, even though it isn't clearly defined, it could be viewed as you know, the destructive effects of climate change that go beyond what can be addressed by adaptation and mitigation. And you know, as the, the belonging to SIDS um, islands, we experience these extreme weather events um, a lot differently and, a lot, and it's a lot more devastating. And we do very little to actually contribute to it. So the Loss and Damage Fund actually acknowledges the urgent need for new, additional, predictable and adequate financial resources to assist developing countries. And again, they have this, this add-on that are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change in responding to the economic and non-economic loss that's associated. There's a reason for that clause that you just heard a while ago. The one limiting the scope of the fund to developing countries that are particularly vulnerable. Now, developing countries consist of a large number of players that some developed countries would like to determine as developed. So, for example, you have um, players with large economies like China, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, UAE, and India who are part of developing. But the reason that they, they, they always add on um, that are particularly vulnerable is because developed countries don't necessarily see those developing countries as needing access to this emergency fund in the same way that, say, um, SIDS would need access. But we'll, we'll get into that later in terms of how aligning with some of those larger nations and larger, larger countries actually benefits 
um, us as the SIDS in the negotiation process. It's important to note here that any decision made at the COP requires consensus, which might give you an idea of what it took for SIDS to achieve the loss and damage fund. If not, then Ruana can probably paint a clearer picture. At this point, I have to tell a fairly long story, so I'm putting that out there as a caveat. Yeah, it's taken a very long time to get here. This loss and damage issue uh, is one that has been live in the context of the global climate discussion since the beginning of that discussion. So we're talking 30 years ago, at least, um, perhaps more. The history of it is, well, it's a little bit complicated. What I will say is that right now, in, in the context of the global climate discussion, those discussions are governed by three agreements. The first agreement is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was agreed in 1992. The second is the Kyoto Protocol, which was agreed in 1997. And the third is the Paris Agreement, which was agreed in 2015. Loss and damage is an issue that small island developing states, through the political grouping of the Alliance of Small Island States, or AUSIS, uh, would have pushed to have addressed in the context of each of those agreements, um, technically, uh, with varying levels of success over the years. The need for loss and damage funding might seem pretty obvious to many of us, especially those already experiencing the transformative power of climate change. But it's actually been quite difficult for the issue of loss and damage itself to even be recognised at the COP. Under the UNFCCC, which is the parent agreement, Thematically, we have sort of four baskets of issues that are on the global agenda for discussion on climate change. Uh, mitigation, which is how do we reduce the emissions that are going into the atmosphere? Adaptation, how do we adapt to the impacts of climate change? Sort of climate finance, where does it come from? Who is giving what? Who is receiving? And transparency. How do states report on all of these actions that they're taking into the sort of global discussion? Those issues are more or less the same issues that were taken forward in the context of the Kyoto Protocol. At that time, though, because of the United States, there was a strong push to add in this issue of markets. So they established the Clean Development Mechanism and carbon markets were created for carbon trading because the U.S. said they would not participate in another climate change agreement where it wasn't possible to carbon trade. By the time we get to Paris, we would have gone through the failure of Copenhagen in 2009, which is actually the first point where we should have had the Paris Agreement, but it didn't happen. At that time, small island development states, again, were advocating very strongly for this issue of loss and damage to be addressed, for it to be recognized as separate and apart from adaptation. They were unsuccessful. So in the context of what came out of Copenhagen and the next day in Cancun, we have an expansion of adaptation work, which includes for the very first time actual references to loss and damage, but only as a clear subset of adaptation. At that time, we also have the establishment of the Green Climate Fund, which became sort of the premier fund for channeling climate finance and sat alongside other funds, the Adaptation Fund, the Special Climate Change Fund, uh, the Global Environment Facility, all of which 
contribute funding for action on climate change. Under the GCF, again, we have two issues, mitigation and adaptation. SIDS were pushing really, really hard at that time. Now, this conversation is going on from about 2010 onwards for loss and damage financing, for loss and damage to be recognized as separate. They were unsuccessful. Uh, Developed countries were adamant loss and damage only exists as a subset of adaptation. Now, you might think it's enough to simply view loss and damage as an aspect of adaptation to the conditions brought about by climate change. But the COP runs on tightly scheduled discussion and negotiation around clearly defined issues. Loss and damage needs to be acknowledged as one of those issues in order to even make it on the agenda. Otherwise, it's virtually invisible. Flashing forward a bit to 2013, and we see some breakthroughs beginning to happen. At that time, we established what is known as the Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss and Damage, which was set up to kind of deal with a range of issues pertaining to loss and damage, but not at all actually relating to financing for loss and damage. So at this point, the loss and damage debate, I would say, hit a high watermark in the global climate discussion and became one of the most contentious issues under discussion. In 2012, it nearly destroyed the COP. Uh, At that time, uh, in 2013, it was the very last issue to be agreed. Uh, We got into the conference center in Warsaw uh, sometime on Friday morning after late night on Thursday, Friday, the final day of the conference. We got in and and we didn't leave until sometime on on Sunday. Um, And loss and damage was the last issue to be agreed. And it was very difficult to come to the agreement on this Warsaw International Mechanism. And why is that? Because for many developed countries led by the United States, any discussion on financing for loss and damage constitutes for them a de facto admission of liability for causing impacts of climate change. And so they have steadily resisted the inclusion of loss and damage into the global climate discussion. But in particular, this question of financing for loss and damage because of that issue of not wanting to de facto admit liability. So now we're starting to see the real issue. See, heavy carbon contributors have always been reluctant to create circumstances that could legally bind them to the more destructive outcomes of climate change. Coming out of Warsaw, we had the WIM established. We finalized the Paris Agreement in 2015. Another difficult discussion on loss and damage took place at that time, where we achieved another high watermark by having a separate article in the Paris Agreement addressing loss and damage. And this was the very, very first time this had happened. The Paris Agreement is the only agreement of the three agreements that govern the global climate discussion that actually specifically references loss and damage. But it does so in a particular way. It speaks to minimizing, avoiding, and addressing loss and damage. So it doesn't speak directly to the issue of addressing, but we have this laundry list of minimizing, which is mitigation, Well, averting, which is mitigation, minimizing, which is adaptation, and then finally addressing. And even in that context, in order for that agreement to be reached, the U.S. requested a very difficult compromise from small island developing states where we have sitting alongside that Article 8 in the Paris Agreement Treaty decision language that specifically says that nothing discussed 
under that article can form the basis for compensation or liability. So again, we have this sort of exclusionary liability clause included in the context of that agreement. So you see, these are the kinds of barriers our negotiators have been facing in regards to this issue. But, you know, we already know that we did manage to take home the win in the end. I'll flash forward a little bit now to 2020, where the then chair of the Alliance of Small Island States proposed a financing facility for loss and damage at the COP in Glasgow. Now, this proposal came after, well, 2021, actually. This proposal came after a major failure in 2019, where AUSIS was pushing very hard for new guidance that was being negotiated for the GCF to include a reference to loss and damage so that the GCF could begin to channel funding towards loss and damage. They were unsuccessful in that push. Boom, we arrive in Glasgow. We want a finance facility. We were also unsuccessful in that push. What we got instead was a dialogue um, designed to actually not deliver any type of outcome. And so it was coming out of that very public failure from Glasgow that AOSIS as a group was able to strategize, regroup, and emerge with a very, very focused campaign being advanced within the process as well as outside of the process in the media through public diplomacy that would have gotten us to this point where we now have what was said to be a very unlikely outcome from COP27 with the Loss and Damage Fund. A fellow negotiator from a developed country that I will not name said to me to my face that if I think that they will ever agree to establish a Loss and Damage Fund on COP27, I'm dead wrong. It would happen over their dead body, right? I'm happy to report that said negotiator is still very much alive and we do have the Loss and Damage Fund. This really gives us a good idea of the role played by factors such as politics in determining what gets negotiated and agreed upon at the COP, as well as the kinds of maneuvers we've had to employ in our attempts to secure agreements in our favour. That notion of, you know, peer pressure and and public embarrassment has always been a key lever in any global climate change discussion. But that wasn't the only thing. And she started to touch on this um, One other aspect of it, and one major, major difference in approach uh, that happened this year was that EOSIS was able to get the agreement of the broader developing country bloc, uh, the G77 and China, about 134 countries, to push for, first of all, loss and damage financing to become an agenda item at the COP because it wasn't even on the agenda. Uh, and then to to push for the establishment of the fund at this COP. And without that backing by the entire developing country bloc, I do not think we would be here today with an actual fund. Developed countries have found all kinds of ways to deny the need for loss and damage funding, and not all of them are immediately obvious. Take the Santiago Network, for instance. Let me say firstly, let me establish that um, if the Santiago Network works well, it can be useful. But that being said, the Santiago Network, which was agreed in 2019, was really, in my opinion, intended as a Trojan horse. Uh, 
in 2019, what else was happening on loss and damage? In 2019, we were having a difficult discussion around, you know, the guidance for the Green Climate Fund and wanting to ensure that loss and damage was included in the guidance so that funding could be channeled for loss and damage as well from GCF funding. We were unsuccessful. Um, boom, everybody wants the Santiago Network, which really is set up as uh, um, a coordinating body for channeling technical assistance on loss and damage. So one of the other issues that I haven't mentioned, one of the other takes on loss and damage that our developed country partners have is that loss and damage is already being addressed. It's already being addressed through organizations that deal with humanitarian work, through organizations that deal with disaster response, and through organizations that are dealing with you know, human rights issues as well. So in their view, there is an entire network of institutions that are dealing with different aspects of loss and damage. So their initial argument about keeping loss and damage outside of the global climate discussion was that it's already being addressed. And if we are to bring it in here, then we need to understand what all of the different actors are doing. And then if there's a gap, that's what we'll discuss in this context. So that, that has been a running argument. Um, the Santiago Network kind of epitomizes that because what the Santiago Network is intended to do is to bring together all of these different organizations, all of these different fields of expertise to sort of pool their resources to provide technical assistance to states dealing with loss and damage. So potentially to assist states with being able to identify loss and damage within their borders, um, what it is, define what it is, describe what it is, and potentially provide an evidence base that those affected by loss and damage can then use to receive assistance for addressing it. At first glance, the Santiago Network almost seems like a proper solution until you place it in the context of the loss and damage debate that was still raging at the time of its conception. The Santiago Network at COP27 was further operationalized. So they set up an advisory board. Uh, they spoke about the membership of that board and you know, called for further support to the Santiago Network, set up a secretariat for the Santiago Network. So there's a whole decision on the Santiago Network providing it with funding, support, and institutional existence. Uh, AUSS had been very, very clear from the start that the Santiago Network is not what is being asked for in order to address climate change. At one point, we had developed country partners from a country that will remain unnamed that suggested the Santiago Network could be like a help desk an IT help desk on our website. And, you know, I remember the response of the minister, the minister from Antigua and Barbuda, who was very clear, you, you get hit by a Category 5 hurricane and lose 200% of your GDP, you're not going to go to a help desk. Like that, that is not what we are talking about when we speak about addressing loss and damage. Like that, that is how ridiculous some of these discussions became in 2021, around the Santiago Network, the rule of the Santiago Network, the fact that it was being pushed by developed country partners as the answer, uh, all to avoid uh, this question of, of finance and this question of an actual fund for addressing loss and damage. So 
yeah, we have we have a great Santiago network outcome. I hope it's I hope it's useful. I hope it's it functions usefully. Ice in the Arctic is melting faster than many scientists predicted. That leads to sea level rise, which in turn increases coastal flooding. The seas will keep rising for maybe thousands of years because the ocean deep has absorbed so much heat already. The increased heat will change weather patterns, bringing more droughts and more rainfall, researchers say. In the words of one leading scientist, we're not doomed, but if we want to avoid catastrophe, we have to drastically cut emissions. Now, Roger Harabin, BBC News. It's easy to imagine that COP agreements would be fairly straightforward, given the pressing nature of our climate change situation. But as Shea points out, there are simply too many factors at play for that to be the case. I feel like I should give a little bit of context on the experience on the ground from uh, a first-timer lens or a first-timer's point of view. So, I mean, this is it was uh, a very interesting, overwhelming, um, demanding experience. And even though we had been briefed from Rwanda extensively and Rwanda actually has many years experience with COP, I wouldn't age her with the number of COPs that she has attended, but she was able to give us some 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 good, uh, I guess, context on, on what to expect on the ground. And it still didn't prepare us for, for, for what we would have encountered. So the, the first thing is the number of agenda items or the number of topics that need to be covered in this um, relatively short space of time because you're talking about two weeks and um, upwards of, you know, like 15 agenda items that need to be discussed um, in detail. So this would mean that meetings would start late, meetings would end up being cut short, meetings would end late because you have a, a rotation of the rooms. So the meeting rooms are finite. Um, so somebody would need to run into this room immediately after. So you, you end up um, kind of rushing through some of the topics or, or everyone not getting to say their piece, which of course would then lead to contention on the road and you know this, this nation feeling that their voice wasn't heard or et cetera, et cetera. Um, then they would have sessions that would continue late into the night and even overnight as parties and countries would try to reach agreement on key issues. Even after considering all the moving parts, it can still be difficult to fathom the idea that political agendas would have a greater impact than stern warnings backed by hard scientific evidence, especially when what we're talking about is, you know, long-term global survival. I personally was not that prepared, was not prepared for the process to be that highly politicized. So going into it, I looked at it as well. This is a uh, one plus one equals two scenario where we're looking at the facts, we're looking at, you know, the the planet is essentially burning down and we need to figure out how do we how do we save this? And you know, in the opening plenary, all of the all of the um the leaders would say the same thing, you know, they would say, all right, you know, this is an emergency at this point, you know, we need to act now. Like so you get the idea that all right, yeah. So you know, thing thing is going to happen with 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 some with some speed and some clarity. And the assumption is that you know the the scientists, the specialists, the environmentalists would be the ones using the science, um, using the reason to say all right, well, these are the things that we need to do. While they did play a key role, of course, um, in the actual decisions. If you pay close attention to 
in the meeting rooms and, and the outcomes, you would see that the, the decisions were actually heavily influenced by agendas and politics. So a lot of developed countries versus developing countries and, and that kind of dynamic, which, I mean, I, 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 I wasn't prepared for. Honestly, even the most jaded among us might have been unprepared for what Shea witnessed at the COP. But Rana's pretty much seen it all by now. I love hearing first-timer impressions of a COP. It serves as a reality check for me as somebody who has, you know, been in the belly of this beast for some time. Um, you kind of get used to the chaos. You kind of get a little immune to, you know, various absurdities that are taking place at every point in time. Uh, I regularly refer to the UNFCCC, which is, you know, our short name for the entire process as the Wild Wild West. It is the Wild Wild West of negotiations. I've been involved in multilateral diplomacy for some time. I've been involved in other processes, uh, the UN more broadly, um, peace and security work, um, sustainable development work, other areas uh, where things function maybe in slightly more rational ways than they do in the context of the UNFCCC. As she said, you know, and, and I remember he would be coming to me randomly during the day, sometimes at the cop with this look of incredulity on his face, like what is actually taking place here? Why is this process so politicized? And that was surprising to me because I take it for granted that, you know, you put 192 countries into a space and tell them, agree on the most challenging issue of the time, politics is going to ensue. It definitely makes sense when you look at it that way. And you can only imagine how difficult that can make things for small island states. The UNFCCC is a really highly complex space to operate in and a deeply challenging one for small island developing states, simply because as countries, we are small, we do not wield the level of economic power that others wield. Um, we're grouped alongside other developing countries, but we have quite specific needs and circumstances uh, that, you know, we need to ensure are protected in the context of what comes out of the agreements and those discussions. And trust me, SIDS negotiators know the meaning of perseverance. Loss and damage is not the only issue that SIDS countries have had to quote-unquote die in a ditch for. We've done it before. You know, in the context of the one and a half degrees Celsius goal, which everyone kind of takes for granted now as, you know, the temperature limits that we are working with when we think about how much global warming will we really allow to happen by the end of this century. It's taken for granted. We have to stay within that one and a half degree limit. But even in the context of the Paris Agreement in 2015, where that limit is sort of enshrined, even at that time, that wasn't taken for granted as a firm agreement globally. In 2007, 2008, when AUS put that on the table, everybody else was talking about two degrees Celsius. Everybody else was saying, look, this one and a half thing, this is not realistic. 
you know, AUSIS countries, AUSIS ministers, AUSIS leaders were being laughed out of rooms, but consistently mentioned it. The slogan became 1.5 to stay alive. And they took that fight into the Copenhagen discussion in 2009, were successful in at least having a reference to it included, even though at that time, the agreement was we would aim to stay well below two degrees Celsius. And we kept that fight alive in that interim period between 2010 and 2015, so that when we show up in 2015 for the Paris Agreement, boom, we have that same well below two degree reference, but we understand that well below two degree reference as meaning 1.5 degrees. And we show up in 2021 in Glasgow and everybody is suddenly a one and a half degrees champion. So this is really the kind of story that surrounds the role of small vulnerable countries in the context of this climate discussion. Loss and damage is the latest frontier, but we are still very much at the beginning of this fight. Mm, let's get ready to rumble! The Loss and Damage Fund represents a major victory for six. And we're not exactly strangers to the idea of having to fight for survival, especially in the face of climate change. But the reality is that this is just the first round. We still have so many issues that need to be addressed. Um, how is this fund going to function? What are the sources of funding? Who is going to be paying into the fund? Who is going to be eligible to receive? What are the circumstances under which a state can apply to receive funds? Will it only be states that receive the funds? Who is going to administer the fund? Where is it going to sit? What's going to be the relationship of the fund with other funds, with the GCF, with the World Bank, with the IMF? Um, coming out of COP27, we've established a transitional committee to work out these issues. We've given them a timeline of one year to sort it out. I won't offer comments on how realistic I think that timeline is. But what I will say is that the struggle has already begun in considering who gets to sit on that transitional committee. That, that's where we're at right now. Every, everybody wants to be there. The committee has to start its work before March. Uh, and yeah, I can tell you already it looks as if it's not it's not going to be smooth sailing. With all these obstacles still ahead of us in this process, it's tempting to feel a sense of hopelessness. But Shea doesn't think that's really necessary at this stage. I don't think so yet, because, of course, the, the agreement established, the fund and the agreement even have this conversation is in and of itself a milestone, of course. But as of right now, I think it's still a little bit too early. Um, like, if you, if you look at the things that are mandated to happen coming out of the cop. So yeah, there's the decision, uh, okay, let's establish a fund. But then after that, there's everything around how it's operationalized. So there's the commitment to establish the fund. Then there's established the transitional committee to oversee the operationalization, which has to happen right now. Um, and then there's the agreement that the recommendations to operationalize the fund have to follow certain criteria. So um, establishing institutional arrangements, modalities, structure, governance. Then there's decisions that the transitional committee will be informed by. So then they have to take a look at the current landscape of global, regional, and national institutions that are already funding activities related to loss and damage 
and ways that synergies could be made amongst those different institutions. The same transitional committee will have to look at the gaps within the current landscape, including the types of funding, speed, eligibility, adequacy, uh, and access to funding. So they have so many things that the, the transitional committee would need to look at and, and modalities that would need to be put in place. I think where, we, where, you, where hopelessness is warranted is if a year from now, or maybe even two years from now, you start to see that, okay, the conversations aren't going anywhere. In the time being, our energy might be better spent positioning ourselves to make the best use of the fund once it becomes available. That sort of gets into the work that we're hoping to do more of as Climate Analytics Caribbean. Our major flagship project is actually focused on governance. It's focused on creating that enabling environment within the region for implementation of climate change um, activities and also specifically for translating outcomes from the global process into actions on the ground because there are gaps, a lot of gaps that exist. We've been doing a lot of work um, trying to create a model climate change legislation for the region. So this would be in the form of a model that sets out a framework and contains options that can be, you know, used or not used by states in building their own national climate change legislation. And it would be specific to the Caribbean region. So it would be tailored in a way that it can be easily taken up by countries in our jurisdiction. Within this model, and the work that we've done so far, we've already seen the need to include clauses and arrangements on loss and damage. We need to be ensuring that we are doing sufficient work on the ground to understand what loss and damage looks like within our own national jurisdictions, uh, to understand what it looks like at the regional level. Uh, we also need to be doing work to ensure that we have institutions already set up that would be in a position to receive this funding and to channel it where it actually needs to go. Some of that work is already in place through all of the work that countries have been doing over the years to get ready to receive GCF funding. So there is funding that countries received from the Green Climate Fund in order to get ready to receive GCF funding. So in order to get their institutions in place, in order to, to set up systems and designate authorities that are able to write proposals, but then also make use of funds coming from the GCF. It's called GCF readiness. I think the vast majority of countries in the region have undergone GCF readiness and are you know, still in the process of doing so. And I think this will also help in ensuring that once the loss and damage fund is up and running, that country is also able to access it and you know, have the institutional arrangements already in place. Of course, it's also important to address some of the same issues that initially worked against us in the fight to actually establish the fund. There is still quite a bit of work that needs to be done. She mentioned the fact that there's no internationally agreed definition of loss and damage. Um, that is true. Um, yeah, and also a long debate within the negotiations as well. And if it should even be defined, if it can be defined. Yeah. Which will have implications for the arrangements and, and how they set up the loss and damage fund. But we do have an advancing, scientifically led understanding of what loss and damage entails. 
And, you know, there were major advancements in the last uh, working group two report of the, the six assessment report of the IPCC with dealing with adaptation and impacts of climate change, where they did make specific reference to the fact that, you know, loss and damage occurs at the limits of a state's adaptive capacity. So that, that was very, very important um, and also very, very useful in getting us to where we are now with the actual fund. And a lot more work needs to also be done in that direction uh, with the actual scientific grounding uh, and, you know, pushing forward the evidence base that would be able to separate out loss and damage from adaptation. We've been here before. Scientific research was what ultimately made the difference in the push for the 1.5 degree goal. Professor Michael Taylor from the University of the West Indies actually spoke about this back in our very first episode. The rest of the world, through the Paris Agreement, kind of put two degrees on the table instead of 1.5. And the Caribbean argued, no, 1.5 is the goal. And so the IPCC decided to do a special report through the lobbying of, you know, the Caribbean and the least developed countries and the other small island developing states to do a special report on the 1.5 target. You know, looking at the state of the science, seeing if they can answer a number of questions. The call for that report triggered then a bunch of studies around the issue that was able to build up that scientific evidentiary base that we see now um, you know, major advancements have been made and that in the context of, of the, the Working Group 1 report of the, the last assessment report of the IPCC. So we have been able to make some advancements on loss and damage and, and the way loss and damage is treated in the context of IPCC work. And we can only deepen that if there is more evidence being brought forward, if there are more studies being done, if there are more people taking on this issue and, and basically willing to, you know, sit and write 10 peer-reviewed articles a year <laughs> on loss and damage and what it means uh, so that we can continue to keep the momentum up because it becomes a lot harder to, to have the level of impact that you need to have in the political discussion if you don't have the scientific backing. And this is what differentiates EOSIS as a negotiating group from other negotiating groups where or other countries where, you know, the most relevant issue being discussed is power. Uh, but from an EOSIS point of view, we've always grounded every position we take in the science. The lesson here is clear. SIDS and other developing countries have often faced heavy resistance at the COP whenever we've tried to address important issues such as temperature limits and loss and damage. But through the power of perseverance, and especially with the help of homegrown scientific data, we've usually been able to pull through. Anyway, that's all we have for you on this episode of Caesar Voices. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to share their insights with us. We'd also like to thank our funded partners, the Barbados Environment Conservation Trust, or BECT, and the Caribbean Centre for Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency, or CECRE, for making this episode possible. BECT aims to help Barbados reach its national development goals by supporting local initiatives aimed at environmental sustainability, while CECRE promotes renewable energy and energy efficiency investments, markets and industries in the Caribbean. 
Of course, we'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Caesar Voices podcast. If you like what you've been hearing so far, please feel free to give us a rating wherever you're listening. We'd also like to remind you that you can visit our website, caesarjournal.org donations to lend your financial support or join our monthly donor club on Patreon and gain access to exclusive content or even be featured in an episode of our podcast. Just click the links in the description. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of Caesar Voices and feature your company or NGO, please click on our corporate link to learn more.